Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful devs about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior dev job. My name's Alex and today I'm joined by Mike Curran, a successful web development business owner and co-host of the HTML All The Things podcast. At Scrimba, we created a junior web developer checklist, which you can find in the show notes. Mike, on his podcast, made a junior developer roadmap. Checklist, roadmap, the intention here is similar, which is to give you ideas about what to learn and in what order so that you can become job ready. But there are some drawbacks which you should be aware of, and Mike and I discuss in this episode. For one thing, a roadmap implies a destination, but then it's not always clear when to move on from one part of the roadmap, like JavaScript, for example, to the next parts of the roadmap, like React, maybe. And therefore, it's difficult to know when you're actually at your destination. You could keep going forever, even though you are more job ready than you realize. If you feel the aha moment when you solve something, that's a good indicator that you probably will grow to like it. There's a good chance. There's not a guarantee, but it's a good chance. But if you finish something and you are just pissed at the process and the result, that's a good indicator to say that, okay, this might be difficult for you to like ramp up to. In this episode, we are going to teach you and discuss how to use a roadmap to your full advantage so that you can meet your coding goals as efficiently as possible. Now do stay tuned to the end because we agree and discuss that there are some technologies and skills that every junior developer absolutely must know. You are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. I wanted to just congratulate you on 2021 because it seems like you've had a bit of an epic year as far as your podcast is concerned, as well as Twitter. I looked up your follow account from last year and apparently, and tell me if this is wrong because it does sound a bit unbelievable, but on Twitter it said that you had like 300 followers this time last year and now you have 20,000 almost followers. I'm not really here to sort of like, you know, bring attention to follow accounts and things like that. But to me, that's like an indication of, you know, the things you're doing. And so I just wanted to ask you, like, what you attribute that success to in general? That's a great question. And yeah, I I think, again, it's not all about the follower count. I've stopped looking at it almost even because I've realized how little it matters after a certain point. But what happened in 2021 was that we kind of had a shift in our how we handle things as a company. Matt and I, my co-host on the podcast, have a small web design agency where we do contract work. And I was working on a more long term contract for several years now where I was a tech lead for a startup in California. Once that contract was up, we had a decision to make, like either extend it or look for another long-term contract, or maybe we had already built this kind of platform with HTML, the things, maybe I take a little bit of time off, like two to three months and really put myself into HTML, the things uh, while we look for something more stable down the line. That's really why you saw that jump, because as soon as I finished that contract and I had some time, I took all that time that I had and invested fully into social media, into the podcast in terms of quality, creating show notes, creating a systems for recording, creating a backlog of episodes, like everything that we wanted to do, we essentially could do now. Matt was still handling a bunch of the business, so I was fully invested in the platform. So Twitter really, it was all about kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't. And then it all became about who should I interact with. Initially, for the first maybe like two to 3,000 followers, I was barely posting myself. I was more just interacting with the people in the community. And I think what made it different for me is like, 
I was legitimately interested in learning about all the different things that people were talking about because I had so little opportunity to talk shop because I'm a work from home developer. Yes, I had teams of developers, junior developers and stuff like that working for me, but it's not the same. I barely ever go to conferences. I barely ever go to meetups, uh, especially with what happened in 2020. So this was my opportunity to kind of talk shop and see where everyone is and align myself to the industry. So that I think resonated with a lot of people. And as soon as I started to figure out, okay, I have an, a little bit of an audience. Now I can start figuring out what content I can create. And that evolved into maybe more of a snowball effect on the follower account. Having said that, again, bringing it back to the fact that the followers, it doesn't really matter. There's plenty of accounts that have a million followers that have zero interaction and zero engagement. And that's just because like they've built up this audience, whether it's real, whether it's not, but they're not providing any value. They're not using it in any way. And it legitimately does doesn't matter that they have that follower count because a person with 30 followers can get 10 times the engagement or 100 times the engagement of a person with a million. So don't look at your follower count. Look at the value you provide. And when you're initially starting out, don't worry about posting the perfect content. You can post once a day, twice a day, whatever. Don't expect too much attraction. Try to find the people that you want to interact with. That's my suggestion. I have to admit, I learned that from you. And I think up until that point, I was using Twitter a lot like a megaphone. I was like, hey, look at this thing I've built. Like, come and check it out. But that really wasn't conducive to anything, actually, in my case, as a podcast host, which is why I had to reconsider my goal. And I would implore everybody to do the same because as a junior developer, your goal probably has nothing to do with earning followers. It's really more about sort of establishing connections with people and having meaningful chats and making friends. But with regards to the podcast and Twitter, one thing that strikes me is that you're all Always trying to deliver value to people. Like you're genuinely trying to make something useful and helpful and something that will genuinely support people in their careers. I just wanted to ask you, like, who are you making the HTML or the things podcast for primarily? Like, who is the person you sort of imagine listening to it? We've thought about this exact question many times because a lot of the times, if you're ever talking to a sponsor or ever talking to someone that's looking into your podcast in terms of analytics, they're asking you, what's your ideal listener, right? Like, what's your perfect person? And for the most part, it is a junior developer in our case, but I think our perfect listener is a developer that just wants to stay current with the industry and is looking at their options for technology. They're looking at different ways to learn. And they're also kind of interested in maybe starting their own kind of side business, side gig, because I think it's important having experienced this myself, I think it's important to have diversified income streams, whether that be just freelancing on the side, just establishing those relationships, just in case you have to get there, whether that be maybe your own podcast, maybe your own blog platform, whatever it is. I think it's an important thing to at least think about. And we try to talk in a breath that like is not only, hey, this is all the web development, but this is this is skills that you can actually apply today to potentially, you know, diversify yourself in the future. So you're never in that situation where you get laid off and you have nothing to live on. What is it about the front-end web developer path that appealed to you? Is it just something that's in your wheelhouse or do you, do you genuinely think it's a good place for any new developer to start? It's a really good question as well because it's not going to be a one answer fits all at all. For me, I think it was more opportunity-based rather than I love front-end web development specifically. At the time when I was first getting into coding, I just had an opportunity to work on websites. So one of my friend's dads needed a website. We had a conversation with them even before graduating that we would start working on their website as well as some IT stuff. So it was more of an opportunity sake. And then as soon as you start learning something, it makes it easier to learn the next thing, the next thing, the next thing in that realm, right? So 
having said that, I do enjoy the front end because I'm not an artistic person and I'm not a super creative person, but I always want to be like, I would love to learn how to draw really well. I would love to, you know, have that kind of talent, but I just don't. It comes to me if I really practice at it and do a lot of work, but it's not something that's like I'm born with. So front end web development is kind of a way for me to um, express myself in that way too, because I understand UI and UX principles so I can design decent looking websites. Uh, I can manipulate templates. I can take something that someone's created and create a visual representation of that. I like that about it, whereas backend is a lot less visual. And although I have delved in it, it's just not as exciting for me. Maybe it's not as well of an output in terms of the creativity. Like I've used front end web development in my like real life. I, I proposed to my uh, current wife creating like a little engagement website or engagement experience where she kind of goes in and goes through like three or four different stages of our relationship. And then the final stage is like a camera and a song starts playing and like it starts recording and I obviously propose. So like it's amazing. <laughs> I like to do those kinds of things and I don't think I could do that with uh, with backend development. So that's why I've always, always leaned to the front end. Okay, that's very interesting. I think you're right that there is no one size fits all answer. With that in mind, let's take this to first principles. Like say somebody wants to become a front end web developer, they've identified that they want to either become a junior developer, maybe freelance or start their own product. And the way they're going to do that is by building front end websites. What kind of skills do you recommend people start with? So I think the first thing that you need to do is evaluate your computer skills. I don't mean to say this as a um, gatekeeping approach because I don't think it is, but I think you need to have an idea of not how an operating system works, but at least being able to use an operating system, whether it's Mac OS, Linux or Windows doesn't matter, but you need to understand the terminology of like, what is a command prompt? What's the start menu? What's a web browser? Like those kinds of things, right? How to access them, at least how to launch them. This might seem redundant to a lot of the people listening to this podcast, but I've been in situations where someone's asked me, hey, how do I get into web development? And they didn't know what an operating system was. Like if I asked them, hey, what do you have? What kind of computer do you have? They said like, like I don't know, just a computer. And I'm like, well, is it Mac OS, Linux, Windows? They're like, no, there's an Apple somewhere. You need to get past that point. So the first thing I would do is just go in and Google what it is. Like, what is a computer? What is an operating system? Uh, or like, how do I use my, my operating system? And it'll go through and break down like, what is a browser? What is a calculator? What is that? What are these applications, right? You start getting an understanding of the base layers. So again, I'm starting really, really low, but if you're in the space of being able to help people, you will get asked these kinds of questions. So it's important to not assume that everyone knows how a computer works or how to even like, you know, launch a web browser or stuff like that. I think for many of us, it's that natural inclination for dabbling with computers that, that leads to programming or just tinkering with things. But that's not the only type of person who can be a successful computer programmer. Like I'm sure there are plenty of people who have either learned that their particular proclivities, whether that's creativity or problem solving, maybe they have no experience with computers, but they have to get started somewhere. I think it's really important you make that point because it's something that I've personally glossed over many times before, and I'm sure others have as well. Where would you recommend people go from there? I think if you're going front-end web development, the easiest and fastest route is to go through HTML and CSS. One caveat that I want to come back to as well, and I'm going to do this a lot because I think everyone learns differently. A roadmap is not a guaranteed place for you to end up. A roadmap isn't something that we're saying that you have to follow to get to a location. 
option to get to a junior developer job. It's just a starting point that you can use to start at least finding the right path for you. So if you find that, hey, this roadmap helps you at least get started, use that. And if you're resonating with the approach, keep going. But if all of a sudden you find that, hey, I really like these skills, I want to more expand more on that, there's nothing wrong with you to go into a certain specific set of skills like HTML and CSS or JavaScript and stay there for a while, learn all the ins and outs there, maybe jump to a different point in the roadmap, come back to it. And there's no wrong way to do it. But a roadmap is something that you can at least get started with if you're starting from zero. So having said that, HTML and CSS is where I would start because we talked about this earlier. It's a very visual way to see how you can write something in code and visually see it appear and manipulate it on the screen. It is programming in my eyes. Like it's not like, you know, if statements, conditionals, but it is the start of programming because again, it's that translation of words to visual images or visualization. And I think it's a really important step. Like when I, I remember I was in like grade seven or something, and the first thing we did was literally open up a notepad document and um, we built like an HTML structure page and I double clicked on it and opened it in a browser and it looked like an HTML, like a website. And I was like, oh my God. I think that aha moment is worth starting there. That's where I would go next. If you are enjoying this episode of the Scrimba podcast, please, can you do us at Scrimba a favor and share it with your friends on social media, like on Twitter, for example, or in your community? Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like. So thank you in advance. Next week, I'm talking with Robert Corrado, a Scrimba student who just got their first full-time junior developer job. I finally got to a point where the pandemic kind of, it hurt my company. It was like, uh, you know, I think I got to shift to something else. And um, my wife was like, I'm so sick of you talking about getting into computer science and playing around with it. Just if this is what you want to do, do it, you know? So she kind of like pushed me and was like, you know, it's, it's time. Robert's had some very relatable challenges challenges like quite firmly understanding HTML and CSS but struggling a little bit to grok JavaScript and the logical parts but despite those challenges he persevered and ended up with not one but two potential job offers from which to choose. That's next week on the Scrimmer podcast so make sure you subscribe as not to miss it. Back to the interview with Mike. I think that there are different degrees of programming. And if you know HTML and CSS, and they're absolutely programming, by the way, anybody who says that HTML and CSS isn't real programming or something, um, I think is talking nonsense. I think the cool thing about that is you can actually achieve a lot with just those two skills. Like you can't really do much with one, but when you bring them together, you can achieve a hell of a lot because you can build landing pages for a local business, right? You might not be able to build the feature where you can log in and book an appointment or one where you can literally buy the product on the page. But there are so many companies in local villages and small cities and things like that, where they would just benefit hugely from having a dedicated page on the web where you can learn about their business and how to maybe phone them up or take the next steps. You can also build email templates. I spoke to a recent Scrimba graduate who went on to create email templates on Upwork as a freelancer. And based on the sort of domain expertise he developed, he then went on to work at Activision doing the same. But of course, we can always go further, right? And I, I suspect that's where this magical thing called JavaScript might come in. Am I right, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you made a really good point about how you can actually monetize your HTML and CSS skills. Again, if you really enjoy creating those HTML and CSS projects uh, without the JavaScript side, you can create templates. You can still work for an agency, in my opinion, if you can show that you can build really nice responsive layouts 
there's plenty of demand for people that can quickly and efficiently build semantic responsive layouts of just HTML and CSS. Yes, it might not be the most highest paying thing, but a way to break into the industry, absolutely. It's a great point, actually, because if you go on ThemeForest or something, you will find not only templates, but the profiles behind those templates making bank, actually. Like you can make a lot of money selling templates, which might not be your only incentive, but I think it's nice to know you can monetize your skills earlier than you thought. But like you said, JavaScript is a great place to move forward to because it's your first foyer into maybe more traditional programming using actual programming concept, logical programming. That's when it kind of, for me, it got exciting because I could not only visualize, like make a visual page, but now I can manipulate that page. I could do something like pop up an alert or even start debugging in the console logs and stuff like that. All that kind of stuff I kind of nerded out on. And the roadmap is almost a way for you to find what you're passionate about. As you're going through it, you can see like, okay, you go to JavaScript and all of a sudden you really like programming and you start knowing that you're passionate about programming and then there's ways for you to kind of elevate those skills as you go. If you really love HTML and CSS, there's ways for you to go there. Or maybe you really love the design aspect of it. So that you go to the Figma design, you become a designer. When you find what you're passionate about in the industry, or at least something that you really like, it'll make it a lot easier for you to break in. Uh, I know for junior developers right now, it's just, it's a very competitive space. So finding that little difference maker, and trust me when I say this, when you're in an interview situation and you show some passion for whatever you're talking about, even if you have to fake it a little bit, it's going to elevate you past the people that don't. So again, it's just finding those things that can help you differentiate, that can help you elevate yourself. And really, it's going to make it easier for yourself as well, because as you're going through, you know, learning JavaScript, learning fundamentals of programming, if statements, loops, everything, if you find some interest in it, if you find a way to change it for yourself that can motivate you, it's going to be a lot easier for you to come back to it every day and try to break into tech. I think looking at a roadmap as a curriculum probably isn't a good idea, like a prescribed step of exactly what order you need to do things in. When you're a junior dev that is self-taught, you have the opportunity, I think, to sort of mix and match different skills and create a unique offering. So yes, I like what you're saying, which is to kind of treat the roadmap as like a tree trunk. This is the core, right? But you can branch off and sort of explore different subjects as they become interesting to you. And there's no real right or wrong way to do it. Like just because maybe, maybe that is a problem with a roadmap, actually, Mike, that it, it creates this impression of like a destination and having to make progress. But really, if you get to like a little bit down the roadmap and you're like, you know what? And I've seen this on Twitter from a few anecdotal examples, but they said, you know what? I just don't like JavaScript. Like, I just don't like it. I love creating visual pages with HTML and CSS. If that person was looking at a roadmap thinking they had so much more to go, that wouldn't be fair, I don't think, because there are plenty of circumstances like we outlined where you can create a successful impact using only HTML and CSS. It's almost great to figure out what you hate doing early on. Because if you go through it like traditionally and you go through school, a lot of the, what you do in school you hate doing. That's just the reality of it because of the structure of the education system, right? And then you go straight to a job and you're like, okay, I'm going to be a web developer. I did this in school. I hated it, but maybe I'll like it in the job. And all of a sudden you're still hating JavaScript constantly and you're stuck in that loop of having to go to work and hating everything about it when all you had to really do was figure out, hey, 
I really like the design aspect of it. And if you would have, you know, gone through and figured out what you hated and then gone through the other tree trunk or the other branch and did the actual design work and loved it, it could have been a totally different career. And it is a shame and it is an unfair thing inside of the roadmaps where they don't have a breakdown of like when you can stop or when you can branch as much as we want them to, I think. And I think maybe that's on us. Maybe we can have a, like a collaborative developer roadmap where we can start breaking it down and where we can start doing branches so that people don't get alienated and so that we can somehow promote people that maybe are going through the tech space. There's so much work in tech that you don't have to be a programmer to be even really in the tech space. But knowing about it, knowing about programming and having learned a little bit about it is going to help you for sure to be able to talk to the people that are actually doing the actual creation. So I'd hate to alienate someone by trying to help them. And I know that that happens a lot, but I really, I really put a lot of effort into trying to not do that. I agree that you can't necessarily know when is a good time to branch off only looking at a roadmap. I also think it can be quite hard to know when to move on to the next thing. At what point do you think someone is ready to like graduate to start learning JavaScript? I think honestly, if you can go on front end mentor and build out one of those layouts or a couple of those layouts comfortably, I think that's when you can move on, right? Like you don't have to spend tons of time. If you can build out one or two of the beginner ones, that's fine. You don't need to know all that to get the JavaScript. But if you want to learn HTML and CSS, you need to have built out a website, essentially. Having said that, you can have gone through the HTML and CSS and hated it and still move on. But again, getting to the point where you know you hate it, having tried, not saying that you hate it right away, is an important point. So hating is something that you can indicate, maybe I should move on to something else and at least try it. If you go through and hate HTML and CSS, move on and hate JavaScript and move on and hate the next thing, that's maybe an indicator that A, maybe you're using the raw materials to learn. B, maybe you need to go back and reevaluate what you want to get out of this as well. So it's like it's a multiple step indicator. It's Again, this is why it's really difficult to give roadmaps. But how do you know if you've given it enough of a go that you, you know, like or dislike it? If you feel the aha moment when you solve something, that's a good indicator that you probably will grow to like it. There's a good chance. That's not a guarantee, but it's a good chance. But if you finish something and you are just pissed at the process and the result, that's a good indicator to say that, OK, this might be difficult for you to like ramp up to. My favorite thing about programming is that aha moment most of the time. There's tons and tons of times in my freelancing career, in my, in my tech lead career, where I just have a problem that I don't think I can solve. Like I just sit there and I'm like, I can't solve this right now. And I have to step away. And like you wake up the next day and you have that moment and you code it up and it's there. And I love that kind of thing. Like I love the logic puzzles. I love that kind of that kind of implementation. So there's parts of programming that I hate as well. But as long as I get to the point at the end where I like the result, that's a good indicator for me, I think. What are some of the things you hate about programming? <laughs> so I really hate the initial part of like that moment where you don't think it's possible. I hate the potential of impossibility because you know you're, you're always over, you're not over promising, you're always hoping to deliver the exact product that you've promised. And a lot of times when it when it's a complicated web application, it's going to change as it goes. But regardless, there's certain moments where you hit that wall and you know it's going to be a real big pain for you to get through that wall. So that exact moment, I don't like that moment. But again, that's when I know I need to step back. That's a really good indicator for me, in fact, to step back and go for a walk or something. Because when I come back and I have an idea to get through it, that's kind of my aha moment and I can keep going. But yeah, I do I do hate hitting roadblocks. <laughs> 
That's for sure. But that problem in itself is almost a opportunity to have huge excitement when you eventually solve that thing that you couldn't imagine solving. I love that feeling. Yeah, that's exactly it. So that's why I knew that programming was for me. I had those aha moments. And even though I really did struggle sometimes figuring stuff out, I was able to get enjoyment from it. So at the end of the day, it is a job, right? So like we we can't expect everyone to just love programming, uh, but you need to be able to at least get something from it. In my opinion, again, this is a really difficult topic to talk about because I don't, again, I don't want to alienate people that just do it as a job. I do imagine some people do really struggle with this question of like, you know, am I meant to be a programmer? Like, I'm not sure if I like it, but it's very reassuring that you, an experienced developer, don't love everything about programming. Like, it's okay to hate some things. Yeah, it's maybe unreasonable to think you have to love all of it. Maybe most people don't, but on social media, you tend to just say how much you were born coder or you love coding and stuff like that. There's no room for nuance. Yeah, but that's why I try to give a honest take as much as I can, because first of all, I don't want people coming into the industry thinking it's all rainbows and sunshine as well. You need to have a realistic approach when you're coming in as a junior developer. That's why we created that junior developer struggles episode. That's why we do talk about realistic things inside of coding, because I don't want people to think that we're all of a sudden tech has evolved to the point where everyone loves their job. It's just not the case, but there's great opportunities in tech. And I think it's an important field right now that's expanding. So it's important to get people in it, but you need to set expectations. We are, and let me reassure you, going to link to a checklist that I created as part of my work as Scrimba, which outlines some of the things that I think would be good for you to know on your path to becoming a junior developer. And we'll also link, Mike, to your episode and the show notes in which you spoke about a front-end developer roadmap, sort of breaking it down in a bit more detail. I think that's going to be really useful to people. I've listened to it and referenced the show notes recently. And one thing I noticed is that you kind of introduced this distinction, I think, between essential skills and monetization. Can you talk about that? In the roadmap that I created, one of the things that I wanted to clearly label out is that you don't have to complete the the entire roadmap to then find a job. It's important to know when you have enough skills to be able to monetize. And like we already talked about, HTML and CSS is a monetizable skill. Now, in my roadmap, I added a couple things like maybe you want to know some bootstrap to make it a little bit easier to integrate into third party projects. Like if people bring you on, a lot of the times bootstrap is going to be in any legacy code base. So maybe you want to know a little bit about UI frameworks. It's an optional thing. The other thing is, is if you want to freelance and you want to create websites, there's also basic hosting as an essential skill. So being able to, you know, deploy on Netlify, Vercel, or maybe traditional LAMP stack hosting, right? Just understanding that process. Those, in my opinion, again, HTML, CSS, computer skills, maybe UI frameworks and hosting are enough of a stop point for you to be able to go out and try to find clients, to be able to go out and find a job, to be able to go out and start monetizing, start trying to break into the industry because... When you break into the industry, it's a very different path for you at that point, because when you get your first job, everything else on the roadmap will be determined by the person that hires you. It's a positive and a negative. Like the positive is you all of a sudden don't have to worry about learning this yourself because you're going to be guided to it. You're going to hopefully have good mentorship with it and you're going to up your skills a lot faster than you would on your own, at least for most people. And as soon as you break in, that that's the challenge, that's the junior developer challenge. One year down the line, two years down the line, it's going to be 10 times easier for you to switch roles rather than, you know, breaking in with zero experience. So Again, my, the whole purpose of my roadmap is for you to break into web development, right? Not to learn it start to finish. It's just to give you an edge to try to start breaking in. And while you're breaking in, let's say you start monetizing, let's say you start applying, 
learn the next parts as you're doing that. I know it's a lot to ask, but you can still continue through the roadmap while trying to break in. I like your point as well, that what job you get will sort of determine the roadmap. I definitely remember this. Like when I was learning to become a junior dev, really roadmaps weren't a thing, to be honest. Like they weren't a very well-known type of content for developers. You sort of had to make your own roadmap. And obviously I wanted to sort of design a skill set that was appealing both to employers, but also within my community and among my peers and stuff. Like I wanted to know the coolest, trendiest technologies. So left to my own devices, I would sort of cultivate this list of like all the things I thought were cool. And I saw people I looked up to doing them. Were they the right things to get a job as quickly as possible? No, there's actually so much less pressure to get it right, I learned. Because here's a good example, like you are inundated with front-end library and framework choices nowadays, like between Svelte and React and Vue and Ember and so on and so forth. And you sometimes wonder about picking the right one. But yeah, if you get a job and their tech stack is Ember, you might be like, oh, that's not so trendy. I wanted to use Svelte. But honestly, you're going to learn so much about how a real front-end project evolves, how the structured looks, what the data management looks like, how the team collaborates. Frankly, the library or the framework at that point is like inconsequential. You know, mastering React or Svelte or something trendier isn't really that appealing compared to actually being good and experienced at contributing to a real code base. And honestly, maybe roadmaps don't have a lot of nuance for this in particular because they'll want to be prescriptive about what specifically to learn. Like if you come across a roadmap and it says, you know, learn a front-end web framework, you'd feel pretty short-changed, I think. So they're going to to make a, a sort of bet on one or the other, it's actually us trying to be helpful. Like by specifically suggesting a framework, we're trying to just reduce your options, right? Because actually we know with a bit more experience that it doesn't matter as much which you pick. Like if you go down this path, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be in a pretty good place, don't you think? Um, but then there's still always going to be a little bit of nuance, right? Like depending on your specific goals and who you are and what you've done before. I think that's an important point. I think you brought up the whole React, Svelte, Angular, Ember, all, all those other things. And the important point to take away from all this is that if you understand how they work, if you understand the fundamentals of a JavaScript framework, it's going to translate. If you started with Angular, you started with Ember, and you've built a full application or 10 applications with it, you can take on any other framework. Yes, it's going to take some time for you to spin up in it, but it doesn't matter at that point. You have the fundamentals of the programming down. You understand the concepts of what a framework does and what it helps you with. That's all that matters. Can you go into the documentation and you know control F or command F and try to find the right terminology? for the thing that you're using, like conditional rendering and looping and conditional looping. like You need to know that kind of stuff more than you need to know the exact framework that you're using. And it's really difficult to kind of get this point across and to be able to talk about this openly on Twitter all the time. Um, but it's something that I'm trying to do as much as possible. Like this, I, I created a Svelte for a Beginners course. And in the course, I constantly say like, this is how you do it in Svelte, but really, this is the fundamental concept of a, a JavaScript framework. You can apply this to React, to Vue, whatever. It's just going to look a little bit different. That's all. So I keep trying to tell people that are just starting out, my assumption, people that are just starting out kind of have a little bit of a foundation in JavaScript, that the skills that they're gaining are not just for Svelte. They're very applicable to all the other frameworks that they're going to be using down the line. And when you're in a situation that you're applying for a job and you go to your local job board and all you see is React jobs, but you learned Angular or you learned Svelte, 
In my opinion, go take a week, figure out React because that's your local job board, put it on your resume. And during the interview, if you get one, explain the situations, explain like, hey, I built a couple projects in React to get spun up in it. I understood these concepts X and Y. Uh, my specialty is with Svelte or Vue because that's what I built most of my projects in. But the skills that I've learned from there, 100% transfer and take them through this conversation. And I think that'll actually bring you as a more valuable asset because who knows down the line, maybe they want to use Svelte. Who knows down the line, maybe they want to have someone that can switch between frameworks. That's, I think that's a skill that you can take across more than I'm an expert in React and I refuse to use anything else. I've had that conversation with people and I, I don't think that that's as valuable as being a person that can take your skills and transfer it. If you learn React and now you're switching to Svelte or, or Angular or anything like that, you, you have this like terminology, like you will literally Google what is X in Angular, right? Like what is this React thing in Angular? And you couldn't do that unless you knew one. And I guarantee you'll find the answers much more quickly because somebody else has asked it on Stack Overflow or they've had the same sort of, you know, how do you do two-way data binding in Angular or in React, for example? Maybe there's a bunch more concepts. Like I was thinking of how performance works in a lot of these libraries and frameworks. Like they have slightly different flavors of ice cream, so to speak, but many will be using like a virtual DOM or some efficient way of rendering the page, batching the state updates. You know, when you learn these kind of underlying concepts, you're so right, like they will transfer in ways that you you just actually can't imagine because you don't know what you don't know, essentially. And, and it's for that reason that I kind of discourage people from hippity-hoppiting between different libraries and frameworks. At least, you know, pick one and trust that it's going to get you far. And if you feel the need to pivot later, for example, because a job in your area or the job you happen to get is uh, putting you on a project that uses a particular library, you can do that. You're like, you'll have the right language and the right ideas about how to do it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a that's really good advice. Just try to learn, like really just try to learn. If it's one framework, that's a great way to go through it, build applications in it, uh, work in it, freelance in it, whatever you can do, try to learn it and believe in yourself that you can make that jump. Because the amount of you know junior developers that I've talked to that are like, I don't even apply to React because I only do Vue, is just ridiculous to me. I'm like, if you know Vue, you know React. Like, I'm sorry, like, yes, it's different, but go and code a, a project in React and put it on your resume immediately. Don't be scared of transferring skills when you need to, when it's a requirement for you to get a job. But when you're learning, it's not a requirement for you to learn every new piece of technology to be good at this. It's in fact a, a very huge detriment to you if you're one day learning Svelte, the next day you hop over to Vue and then go, hop back to Svelte and go to React. You're never going to get deep enough to be able to like transfer those skills. Is there anything that you think a junior developer absolutely must know? Okay, so one piece of technology I would say is Git. Like you have to know Git if you want to break in from a technology perspective. So you don't have to be an expert in it, but you have to know of it and you have to have worked with it a little bit, whether it's just pushing a couple commits, whether whatever, you have to be able to at least talk the talk with Git because all of the freelance projects that I worked on, all of the companies that I've worked in have used some form of version control. Most of them have used Git. Really, again, the learning will actually begin when you start collaborating. You can only learn so much by committing and pushing to your own project without doing a merge. That experience is going to come and you're going to have a mentor take you through your first merge and all that. Hopefully, again, I'm, I'm talking in an ideal world. Sometimes it can be a disaster. But again, so get learn, get other things, maybe more on the soft skill side is 
learn to learn, I think, is, is, is one of the probably the most important ones for anything. When you're a junior developer and you're coming into a job, the reality is, is that probably 80% of what you need for that job is going to have to be learned, self-learned or learned through mentorship or learned through doing. So learn how to pick up on new technologies, learn how to how to use it. Like, I'm not saying go out of your way to study the concept of learning. That's probably not the way to go. But utilize your time when you're learning to note what works and what doesn't for you. So for some people, when they build a project, they learn a ton. For some people, when they go through a Udemy course, they learn a ton. For some people, when they watch a YouTube video at 2x speed, they learn a ton. But it's not going to be the same across everyone. So as you're going through and learning, note down what works best for you, because when you get onto the job and if you think that stops, that's not the case. You're going to have to learn 10 times more than you learned when you were trying to get that job. So you're going to utilize that skill way more than you think. Yeah, like maybe don't sort of go and get a master's degree in pedagogy. But but yes, like you can learn the fundamentals of the psychology through quite easy books, like Make It Stick. I also know Coursera have a, I think it's a course essentially of a few modules about how to learn. Um, there's some great YouTubers as well, like Thomas Frank and Ali Abdul, like they talk a lot about things like the Feynman technique, I think it's pronounced, which is where you learn by teaching. So you kind of repeat what you've learned in a condensed way. And also things like spaced repetition and things. There's lots of great YouTubers around on those subjects. I think just a nice way to kind of close the episode, actually, and a really nice segue I think I've just stumbled upon is that you've shared a few times how important it is to apply the knowledge and not just sort of memorize and regurgitate it, but actually apply the knowledge. And I think for anybody, the key to success lies somewhere in this phrase. You will learn best, I think, when you are motivated, and that might be to complete a project. Where you get to be creative is like, what kind of project? How big of the project? Who do you collaborate with? But just talk us through a little bit about why you think it's so important to apply what you're learning. Oh my God, it's so, there's so much importance in that. In development, in tech, you cannot get to where you need to go without applying your knowledge. You cannot go through school where someone's teaching you how to do something or go through a YouTube video or go through a course and never code and then take that skill and use it in a job setting. It's so important for you to figure out a way for you to be able to utilize the stuff that you're learning as quickly as possible. So if you're going through a YouTube video and they're teaching you how to set up a Svelte project and create a little to-do application, I think as a goal, you should be utilizing something that you're learning in that video and doing it almost immediately if you're going through the trouble of actually watching, you know, the 30 minute or 40 minute video, because just watching it while you pick up on some terminology and figure some stuff out in your head, the immediate aspect of after watching it and then going on to watching something else, it's going to just fly out of your brain. So it's really, really important to use the knowledge. And the thing that I like to do and the thing that like I promote others to do is to not only kind of just copy what's being done in the video, Try to find a goal. So for instance, right now I need to build out habits, right? So my, my life is kind of all over the place. I need to build out better habits. So a logical project for me would be something like a habit tracker that fits exactly into my kind of system. So the, the habit system that I want. Yes, those exist, true. But the fact that I'm building it for myself and I can add the tweaks that I want to it is going to motivate me to build it. And to build it, I'm going to have to learn some new skills as I'm building it. So I'm going to have to take the courses. I'm going to have to watch the YouTube videos. But every time I'm going to watch that video, 
instead of thinking about like, okay, I'm just going to redo exactly what they did. I'll be thinking, how can I apply this directly to the habit tracker that I am building currently? And that information for me sticks so much more than just following and and doing a, a project from a course. Not that that has zero value. I think that's still valuable, right? Like doing a course project or doing a YouTube video project. I think that's still better than not doing it. But having that extra twist where you're doing something for yourself and you're creating your own project is a multi-benefit factor where you're retaining the knowledge better, you're immediately utilizing it, and you're building out something that you can definitely put on your portfolio because it's something that you have passion for and it's something that's outside of a course project. I'm, I'm a little bit against putting course projects and YouTube projects on portfolios because it's very obvious usually from a hiring perspective. Um, now, if you have nothing else, sure, do it. Try, try to differentiate yourself, get into the industry, sure. But if you can, try to find projects that you want to actually work on, you want to build, that maybe are similar to portfolio projects or course projects, but at least a little bit different enough for you to talk about them and talk about the challenges you had doing it. It's hilarious, isn't it? Like you wouldn't expect to get good at tennis by watching tennis on television. It's a very easy mistake to make, both if you haven't found success in school, as I didn't. Like I never really learned how to learn at school, but I always could pursue my interests. And through that, I managed to get good at a couple of things like coding, for example. I remember always struggling to build projects that already existed. I was like, I don't know, man, like, why am I going to build the 98th habit tracker? Like this problem has been solved. Like it's not that, like, I just couldn't get my head around it for some reason. And I was actually quite guilty of being bad at finishing projects for various reasons. I didn't have the Scrimba podcast back then to show me the way, unfortunately, but I was really bad at like getting distracted and, you know, chasing new technologies or starting new projects and things. I really wish I had the discipline at the time, or at least the encouragement to to finish those projects because they would have resulted in success quicker, I think, and deeper learning. But still, one challenge I definitely faced, and I wonder if other people feel, is just like, you know, it's been done before. Like, it's not particularly interesting. Is it a personality thing? It doesn't really seem to like register for you. Like, you don't you don't seem to mind. Or is it more in what you described before about sort of making it just so you know, for yourself, maybe that's where you find the motivation. The motivation comes from multiple different things where this isn't a project that you intend to mass produce or mass market. This isn't a SaaS product. This is a project that you intend to use personally. And I think that is the motivator here, along with the fact that obviously this project isn't just for your own use. It's for the portfolio. It's for the knowledge gaining. It's just an addition to what you need to do. I agree with you that it's like if you're thinking of a SaaS product, if you sit down with your business partner or you sit down with your friends and you're shooting the shit about a SaaS product and you mention a habit tracker, everyone's going to say that's been done a million times. Why would you do it? Right. It doesn't make sense. So rebuilding Facebook doesn't make sense. Rebuilding Twitter doesn't make sense. Like all that kind of stuff, like you're not going to do that as a way to profit and, and make money. But as a way to learn, especially if you have that little special twist for yourself, find something where you that with that special twist, in my opinion, is really important. If you have that, it's going to be a huge motivator for you to kind of get it done. But having said that, I'm the same way as you, Alex. I abandoned more projects than I finished, like much more. And I think that that's completely normal. I want like just to point out to everyone, because I'm sure most of the audience is the same way. But at some point, you know, try to finish something at least. It'll make you feel better. It'll have something to do for your portfolio. But don't feel super bad that you, you know, you didn't finish project X, Y and Z because that's just a normal thing. I think sometimes it's actually good to quit. You know, there's a good framework for some people recommend and it's like, do you want to quit? Is it tough? Yes, probably. And then it's like, is it worth doing? And if it's worth pushing through that discomfort, then 
yeah, keep doing it. It's harder than it's worth it. If it's harder than it's not worth it, then don't do it. If you put it in such simple terms, like it sounds a bit a bit miserable. I was, you know, 1920 when I was learning to code and I didn't know exactly what motivated me. One thing that's always been true for me is like I'm very motivated by learning and like that aha moment. I remember one of the projects I made the most progress on was like a blog clone because somebody I looked up to in the community had built their own blog engine. And even though it was totally superfluous and redundant and unnecessary, I looked up to them and I was like, cool, I want to do that. And in the process, I learned about different ways of handling data and how to use a framework and things. But one day I sort of woke up and it might have been one week or a month. I don't remember. It was a while ago. And I was like, right, I think I'm about done with this project. I don't feel like it's worth pushing through to like flash out the front end and build an admin panel and all the rest of it. Like that was just enough for me. And and even though it didn't end up on a portfolio or anything, it wasn't a waste of time by any stretch of the imagination because I learned so much in the process. And so there is something to be said about finding a motivation. In recent years, it just kind of struck me that like some people are probably a bit like Tony Stark. They love the idea of like, you know, having their own version of everything. To me, I feel like that's a waste of time. I don't want to do it personally. But you know, nowadays I'm looking at every utility and tool I use and I'm thinking, oh, that'd be a good junior dev project. Oh, that would be a good junior dev project. Like I use the tool to extract thumbnails from a YouTube URL. Like the YouTube PNG, the thumbnail is in the HTML. So you would make a get request to get the HTML and maybe use regex, God forbid, using regex to pass HTML. I know, but but whatever. Like, Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Just give me a nightmare. Talk to me about that, Mike. Because someone commented on a YouTube video I made. I, I made a similar joke, and they they asked like, "Why don't you use Regex to parse HTML?" Because there's so many better tools. There's HTML parsing tools like Python has some amazing ones. So if you're going to make like maybe a, a great way for you to learn Python is to use like Scrapey or something like that, uh, and not do Regex in HTML. There's just so many better ways to do it that have less chance of something going wrong. Regex is legitimately a real way to do it. I agree with you there. You can absolutely create a really reliable scraper in Regex, but someone's already done it 5,000 times and probably 100 times better than you. So use the tool that they've done instead of reinventing the wheel on the web, at least on the web scraping side. I say this having a new philosophy where I use less and less packages. But I think for scraping, I 100% would, uh, would use a third party tool. Mike, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've had such a great time chatting with you. Is there any sort of like closing words or advice you want to share to any junior developers listening? First of all, I want to say a huge thank you to you, Alex. Thank you to the Scrimba team. I had a great time. Looking forward to you joining us on the podcast. As a final word to the junior developers out there, um, again, not one size fits all. Don't get discouraged if what we're seeing doesn't fully resonate with you. There's hundreds of other creators, there's hundreds of other people that know what they're doing just like we do and are giving different advice. Find what works for you and try to stick with it as best you can. You can make it into development, you can make it into tech, and uh, we're just kind of rooting for you. Mike from HTML, all the things. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Mike Curran, a successful web development business owner and one half of the HTML All The Things podcast. Thank you for listening. By the way, if you made it this far, you might also wish to subscribe to the Scrimba podcast for more helpful and uplifting episodes with newly hired juniors and industry experts alike. You can also tweet me, your host, Alex Booker, and share what lessons you learned from the episode so I can thank you personally for tuning in. My Twitter handle, along with Scrimba's, is in the show notes. See you next week.